You are listening to the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center, Vanderbilt Regional Burn Center. The topic that I would like to discuss today is extremity compartment syndrome. Compartment syndromes occur whenever the pressure inside a particular anatomical area exceeds the pressure which allows uh, adequate blood flow and subsequent delivery of oxygen and cellular nutrients. Left untreated, uh, an extremity compartment syndrome will lead to the uh, destruction of muscular tissue resulting in uh, myonecrosis or muscle death, and that will ultimately result in the uh, release of myoglobin and subsequent renal failure. There are several things that can initiate this sequence of events, and this gets into the idea of a primary and secondary injury. A primary injury, we need to think a lot like when we think about people who've had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, in the case of traumatic brain injury, a primary injury can be somebody hitting somebody in the head with a baseball bat, a fall, or a gunshot wound. And that results in primary uh, organ damage in the brain. What then follows is an inflammatory cascade that results in uh, swelling of the brain. And it's that swelling of the brain that's frequently the most lethal component, uh, or this what's called the secondary brain injury. We have something very similar to that when we're talking about um, abdominal, excuse me, not abdominal, but extremity compartment syndromes, that uh, a, the primary insult may be the result of uh, a traumatic event, a fracture, uh, a gunshot wound, a stab wound, or an ischemic event, uh, such as a, an arterial injury. And the longer that that uh, limb is injured, or, or in the case of ischemia, is ischemic, then that reperfusion phenomena then results in uh, cellular uh, swelling. And it's the secondary injury follows the primary injury occurs as a result of swelling and upregulation of the inflammatory cascade, or typically cytokine release, uh, and that results in that uh, inflammatory response. Now, compartment syndrome of the extremity is different than what we see typically in burns, which require fasciotomy, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. Compartment syndromes may uh, present clinically as a swelling or enlargement uh, of the extremity, or uh, it may not be as uh, clinically apparent as one may think. Um, if you imagine that the skin is acting as kind of a, a constricting element, uh, and that the fascia skin, uh, skin is uh, in, in allowing uh, tissues to swell deep to them, but the skin or the uh, overlying fascia is restrictive, and therefore um, the um, Injured tissue begins to swell until it basically takes up that entire volume. And then as it swells, what it does is then it starts uh, compressing vascular structures, uh, obstruction, uh, vascular structures. Typically, the first thing that is obstructed is a venous outflow because of the low pressure of the venous system. Uh, and as the venous outflow is obstructed, then you have essentially a venous tourniquet where you have arterial inflow. There are four key factors that determine the um, significance or the potential uh, of damage with uh, extremity compartment syndrome. And those four key factors are, number one, the rapidity of onset. The more rapid the onset, the more devastating uh, that elevated pressure is going to be. Number two is the duration of the intracompartmental hypertension. And again, as you imagine it, the uh, longer that the patient has uh, elevated compartment pressures, uh, the more damage that's going to be done uh, to the muscular and nerve tissue uh, due to um, decreased perfusion and oxygen delivery. The third element is the compartment perfusion pressure. And we're going to discuss this a little bit more in detail. The compartment perfusion pressure should be thought of much like the cerebral perfusion pressure that we think about in regards to uh, the management of um, cerebral hypertension following traumatic brain injury. 
The fourth element is the rapidity of decompression. Basically, the longer you allow it to sit there, uh, the more damage you're going to have. If you would uh, identify the compartment syndrome more rapidly and decompress it more rapidly, the better out your outcomes are going to be. Now, going back to the uh, rapidity of onset, uh, basically, um, uh, intracompartmental hypertension that develops gradually over time generally is better tolerated uh, when, as compared to when it develops uh, rather precipitously as a result of acute injury. Prolonged intracompartmental hypertension in inadequate compartment perfusion pressure uh, uniformly leads to cellular hypoxia, progressive secondary injury, and permanent tissue damage. And we need to go back and really define what is this compartmental perfusion pressure. Typically, when we think of extremity compartment syndrome, we're thinking of compartment syndrome developing in the lower leg, and in some cases, we see it in the upper extremity. Um, where in burns, where we see um, uh, compartment pressures are uh, people who've had very serious um, and very deep burns to either the upper extremities or the lower extremities. And what happens in, in people who require fasciotomies, now this is in contrast to people who need escherotomies, and fasciotomies, the muscles basically cook. Uh, and as they cook, they swell, and as they swell, they compress the veins and the arteries, and therefore you've got an ischemic um, um, group of muscles. Uh, we see it also in um, electrical injuries, uh, where somebody may have a um, uh, have grabbed a high tension line, and you've got a conduction of electrical current from arm to arm, and those patients will typically have uh, forearm compartment syndromes. Um, and, and can also have lower extremity compartment syndromes as well. Uh, the extremities possess a complex arrangement of relatively small fascial membrane enclosed compartments that contain vital muscles, nerve, and vascular structures. For instance, uh, in the lower extremity, uh, we have uh, four uh, fascial compartments or four compartments that we measure pressures in and try to decompress. That's the anterior, the lateral, the posterior superficial, and the posterior deep. It's important to note that there is no medial compartment. A variety of injuries and illnesses encountered in the intensive care unit may increase intracompartmental pressures and potentially result in vascular insufficiency, peripheral nerve ischemia, and this is known as Volkmann's ischemic contracture, muscle necrosis, and even loss of the uh, uh, injured extremity. I don't want you to think that a compartment syndrome is solely an uh, isolated injury to an extremity. It may also produce systemic manifestations uh, from an extremity compartment syndrome, and these can uh, include the development of acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, cardiac failure, renal failure, uh, diffuse intravascular coagulation, and even uh, multisystem organ failure, organ dysfunction. When one is working in an intensive care unit, one really should consider the possibility of a patient developing an extremity compartment syndrome in patients who have had prolonged vascular occlusion, um, typically greater than six hours after injury or before reconstruction is completed successfully. Now, this could be certainly in a traumatic case, but it could also be uh, in a, a vascular patient who's, who's thrown an uh, occlusive embolus to the lower extremity and uh, gets delayed. Um, is delayed seeking medical care or definitive surgical care. Uh, people who have combined arterial and venous vascular injuries are certainly at risk. People who have long bone fractures, uh, people who have marked traumatic soft tissue injury uh, due, due to the edema, people who've had massive resuscitations, and we've seen this um, being reported more and more in trauma literature, and people who initially have had these horrible abdominal compartment syndromes, um, and then now we've, subsequent to that, we also learned that patients can also have extremity compartment syndromes from nothing else other than massive resuscitation with intravenous fluids. 
Those people have had abdominal compartment syndromes or intradominal hypertension for basically the same reasons, is that in the case of a massive surge response or a massive fluid resuscitation, the patient um, uh, will get a surge-type response. Typically, they end up getting massive amounts of um, uh, intravenous fluids, and abdominal compartment syndrome is from swelling or edema of the intra-abdominal viscera. If you can have swelling of your intra-abdominal viscera enough to impair return of blood uh, flow through the vena cava and uh, movement of the diaphragm, certainly you can have swelling of the uh, musculature of the extremities enough that they can swell within their fascial compartments and result in uh, extremity compartment syndromes. Anybody who has marked edema secondary to systemic inflammatory response syndrome and anybody who has prolonged immobilization. I've seen uh, several of those um, uh, in my time. You've, uh, you've had patients who uh, overdose on one thing or another, heroin, and they're at a party and they collapse in a closet and somebody finds them two days later. Uh, and they've been immobilized on their leg or something and they'll come in uh, with a compartment syndrome and uh, will often end up losing muscle, if not even a portion of the limb. Uh, those who, patients who have been uh, have suffered from an envenomation from something like uh, snake bites, compressive dre- dressings and tourniquets, and this is a very important point to make, um, that uh, I've seen one of these uh, cases um, um, uh, during my uh, years in practice, and uh, this was a patient who had a cast on that was too tight, and the patient was complaining of a lot of pain, a lot of pain, and by the time the cast got split, the patient had developed a significant compartment syndrome and required muscle debridement of uh, muscle from the anterior compartment of uh, the leg. This is not only uh, true of casts, but it's also true of people who've even had tight bandages. Uh, burn patients typically are uh, wrapped in tight ACE bandages, and you can actually put an ACE bandage on tight enough uh, that you can actually create a compartment syndrome. So when anybody has a cast on, a splint, uh, or any kind of dressing, they're complaining of pain in that extremity, you need to take that uh, very seriously. Um, and patients who've had extravasation of intravenous or contrast material, and we've seen this uh, in infants, um, particularly uh, in very small infants that are in a, a pediatric intensive care unit or a neonatal intensive care unit, and there's been extravasation. Uh, in those very small uh, 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 kids, uh, it doesn't really take much fluid to extravasate into the soft tissues that can basically impair uh, venous drainage and uh, arterial inflow of that extremity and result in a compartment syndrome. So, how do we make the diagnosis? Well, the diagnosis of extremity compartment syndrome typically refers to something called the, the classic six P's, and, and we, we discuss this because it's classic. Um, pain, paresthesias, pressure, pallor, paralysis, and pulselessness. And those are presented in the uh, frequency in which they occur, pain being the most common, paresthesias being the second most common, pressure. But by the time you get to pallor, paralysis, and pulselessness, the um, compartment syndrome is, has likely to have been present for quite a long time. The other key thing to point out there is that pulselessness is typically the last thing uh, to develop. Remember when we talked about the pathophysiology is that you've got some sort of primary injury, which then subsequently sets you up for um, an inflammatory cascade that results in a swelling of the tissue in the muscle. That then does what? Well, that as the, the tissue begins to swell, it then includes venous outflow, creating kind of like a venous tourniquet effect, and then over hours the muscles swell at a faster rate to the point where they actually occlude arterial inflow. So the time you get down to pulselessness, you're basically down at the bottom uh, of the cascade of events, and we'd like to uh, avoid that if we absolutely uh, can. 
Now, unfortunately, these clinical signs and symptoms can be difficult to assess in a patient who is in the intensive care unit. They're critically ill. They may be intubated. They may be on drips of benzodiazepines or fentanyl, uh, and they may have some rather bulky dressings on because they may have uh, suffered a, a traumatic injury uh, and have may have had an orthopedic uh, fixation. Of the six Ps, pain is the most sensitive uh, for predicting elevated intradominal compression uh, pressures. It's typically described as pain out of proportion to the physical findings, and the presence of such pain out of proportion should be considered evidence of an extremity compartment syndrome until proven otherwise. And typically, um, a, a patient who typically will present pain out of proportion to the uninitiated, which is really a nice way of saying to the naive provider, uh, the inexperienced provider, somebody may just think somebody is drug-seeking or, or a little bit crazy uh, because why on earth are they complaining of such incredible pain? Well, if you come across that individual, you have to uh, not dismiss it as the patient being um, uh, drug-seeking or um, um, poor behavior, you need to uh, first say, does this patient actually have an organic reason for their pain and discomfort, and is that reason a compartment syndrome? The paresthesias is all, are also a, a reasonably sensitive finding, but again, uh, in the intensive care unit, uh, that may be a rather subtle finding uh, and, and may not be uh, a very difficult or may, may not be very easy to kind of tease out as to uh, that complaint. Now, paralysis, as we've said, is a late finding, and this is the result of prolonged nerve compression and or, and or uh, irreversible muscle damage uh, and indicates that the diagnosis and appropriate intervention were delayed when you get to that point. And as we said, pulselessness is really the last sign to appear, and you really don't want to get to that point. Uh, if you're presenting a patient um, who has pulselessness and uh, extremity compartment syndrome, to me, that's kind of like the patient uh, who you have the chest X-ray of, of the tension pneumothorax. You should never have an X-ray of a tension pneumothorax, and you should never have a patient who um, you rely on pulselessness uh, to diagnose their compartment syndrome. Now, again, as we mentioned, that uh, certainly in the intensive care unit, the diagnosis is certainly complicated by things like in the tracheal tubes and sedation or concurrent uh, traumatic brain injuries. So, therefore, you need to have a high index of suspicion for the development of an intracompartmental hypertension coupled with early measurement of compartmental pressures. And that really represents the most effective means of avoiding uh, extremity compartment syndrome uh, and uh, just basically by intervening early and having that high index of suspicion. People like to order things like serum creatinine phosphokinase and, and urinary myoglobin. Um, they're really inappropriately performed because uh, they really are markers of muscle ischemia. They're nonspecific compartment syndrome and, and sensitive as markers for early compartment pressure elevation. If you're having elevations of your CPK and uh, urinary myoglobin and you're using those as, as biomarkers for the development of a compartment syndrome, you've waited too long. I guess I would say that's like, you know, uh, to determine whether somebody's house is on fire, if you see a dump truck hauling away, you know, loads of uh, burnt uh, timbers and saying, well, obviously there must be a house fire. Well, it's kind of late by then. You want something that you can actually intervene and actually save some tissue and do something about. But if you've got elevated CPKs and urinary myoglobin, for all intents and purposes, the, the horse is already out of the barn. Now, for the sake of discussion here, we're going to talk about uh, compartment pressures of the lower extremity because typically that's what most people will see. As I've mentioned, people who have electrical injuries will often have a compartment syndromes of the upper extremity. But uh, there are four compartments of each lower leg. Uh, there's the anterior, the lateral, the uh, posterior superficial, and the posterior deep. 
And these are not, uh, in the case of a compartment syndrome, the pressures in each of these compartments do not elevate uniformly during the injury. And therefore, it's important that you measure the compartment pressures of not a singular compartment, but all the compartments in an, ex in an extremity, because you, you will miss if you take a, a pressure measurement and they say superficial posterior and it's normal, that does not necessarily mean that you do not have a compartment uh, elevation in the anterior compartment. Compartment pressures of less than 20 millimeters of mercury are generally considered acceptable, but still warrant continued close observation um, in the patient who's considered at risk. If you have a patient whose pressures are at or above 30 millimeters of mercury, this really mandates immediate surgical evacuation and decompression. Where you get into kind of the gray zone are the patients who are in that between 20 and 30 millimeters of mercury. And the uh, care of these patients have to be individualized based on the patient's overall condition as well as their clinical evaluation. We talked earlier about comparing compartment pressures uh, for uh, uh, compartment uh, syndrome of the extremities, similar to the way we would manage a patient who has uh, uh, increased intracranial hypertension from a traumatic brain injury. Um, and we understand that when we uh, look at somebody who's got an increased uh, um, ICP or an intracranial pressure, that we have to look at what is the perfusion of the blood to the brain, and that's really defined as the cerebral perfusion pressure. And the cerebral perfusion pressure, uh, when we talk about brain injury, is really defined as what the mean arterial pressure is minus the cerebral perfusion, excuse me, minus the intracranial pressure. So mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure, and that gives you cerebral perfusion pressure, basically the pressure at which blood is perfusing through the brain. Uh, Elevate Elevated compartment pressures need to be think of, of something very similar to that, and that's the extremity perfusion pressure. Now, the extremity perfusion pressure, if you have a patient who has, say, uh, a, um, a measured pressure of, say, 22 or 25, they're in that gray zone, well, what if the patient is hypotensive? What if their mean pressures are sitting down in the 60s, and, and you're sitting there with a compartment pressure of, say, um, 25, then what is your... Um, um, extremity uh, perfusion pressure, and that would be defined as your mean arterial pressure minus the greatest intracompartmental pressure. In this case, it would be 25. Elevated compartment pressures uh, um, in a normal tensive or hypertensive patient are less likely to cause ischemia than elevated compartment pressures in the hypotensive patient. As a result, maintenance of uh, an extremity perfusion pressure of at least 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury is strived for. So if you looked at our patient who we said had a mean pressure of 65 but had an elevated um, uh, intracompartmental pressure of 25, then that would leave you with an uh, extremity perfusion pressure of 35. Now the treatment for extremity compartment syndrome is immediate decompressive fasciotomy of all the musculofascial compartments. Rapid diagnosis and expeditious decompression is essential because of the duration and severity of the elevated intercompartmental pressure directly correlates with the likelihood of muscle damage and nerve damage. Decompression may be formed either in the operating room or, which is really more practical than what we do typically in the intensive care unit. Patients with documented myoglobinuria require generous hydration if possible and alkalinization. And remember, that's a relative alkalinization. Actually, you don't need to alkalinize the urine to a pH of greater than 7, which is very difficult. But you have to remember what the pKa of myoglobin is. When you're trying to alkalinize the urine, you're trying to make that myoglobin molecule more soluble so it doesn't precipitate in the renal tubules. Uh, and uh, result in uh, renal failure. We've actually described that in, in reasonably good detail 
uh, in the uh, podcast on crush injuries. Uh, the other thing is is that the uh, uh, podcast on crush injuries actually goes through a lot of the complications of myonecrosis. And with the recent earthquakes in China, we did that podcast after a uh, uh, earthquake in South America. And it's uh, uh, very va- uh, important information if there's any likelihood that you'll be carrying uh, for people who uh, may be involved in a building collapse. Uh, bicarbonate is another uh, consideration that people will do to try to increase the uh, uh, urine output and uh, uh, make myoglobin more soluble uh, because it is a large protein. Um, uh, if left untreated, the myoglobinuria from the compartment syndrome can actually result in renal failure, which would require uh, hemodialysis. It's time for uh, me to take a brief time out. Now I want to turn our discussion not so much to uh, um, uh, compartment syndrome, uh, but uh, focus a little bit more on the burn patient. We know that patients who have circumferential injuries to their extremities in burn patients can have uh, pathophysiology very like the the patient who is uh, suffering from uh, a compartment syndrome. In the patient who is suffering the compartment syndrome, the muscles are expanding in the fixed volume of the surrounding muscle fascia. And what's causing that muscle swelling could be burn injury, it could be trauma, it could be ischemia, uh, it could be immobility. In burn situation, what's happening is that with a third degree burn or full thickness burn, the surrounding skin envelope basically turns to leather and it shrinks, uh, decreasing its surface area, contracts. At the same time, the injured soft tissues being uh, subcutaneous fat, and in the case of very deep muscles, even the muscle inside the fascia are expanding in that fixed envelope or that decreasing envelope of skin. And the same pathophysiology sets up is that as the subcutaneous tissues begin to swell, they initially occlude uh, the small veins and, and the larger veins. That results in arterial inflow with decreased uh, venous outflow, and that results in a more rapid progression of the swelling uh, to the point where you will get uh, occlusion of arterial inflow. The treatment for this is escherotomies, um, and an escherotomy is basically making an incision in the burn eschar. I remember uh, when I was a traveling burn fellow, I spent some time at the uh, burn unit in, in Manhattan at the uh, New York Hospital Cornell, and uh, I remember one of the faculty giving one of the residents a hard time because they made an incision and extended beyond the burn eschgar. He says, you cannot make an eschgarotomy where there is no eschgar. And I've seen that done numerous times. The, you make the incision strictly through the burn eschgar. And when you make that incision, what happens is it's much like opening kind of like those Pillsbury biscuits you can buy in the supermarket. When you open uh, a can of Pillsbury biscuits, they're under pressure. And you hear that almost a, a rushing sound. And as the, the can of biscuits decompresses, you get this push sound. You... And somebody who really needs escherotomies, you get something very similar to that. As soon as you go through that burn eschgar, the pressure of the underlying subcutaneous tissues basically pops and uh, decompresses the extremity. Now, escherotomies um, are, are classically described in making them in a medial and lateral uh, incision. It's important that, particularly in the arms and patients who are lying there, typically their palms are pronated down. And if you make what appears to be a, a medial incision, you'll go right through the antecubital fossa. Uh, and if you go lateral, you're going to go right over uh, the olecranon. So it's important that you hold or have an assistant hold that upper extremity in a true anatomical position. And a true anatomical position 
is where the thumb is uh, pointing straight lateral and the palm is forward and make the incisions true medial and true lateral. Um, similar type of things uh, in the uh, leg. You want to make sure that you make your uh, that you're just not making an incision into the burn, but you're making the incision deep enough that you're actually decompressing um, the um, uh, swollen tissue. Uh, the um, inexperienced provider will often make some of these uh, escherotomies extraordinarily deep and down in the muscle. It is not a fasciotomy. Fasciotomy is deeper. It's down in the muscle fascia. Not everybody who needs escherotomies needs fasciotomies, uh, but there are a subset of patients who have very deep burns of their extremities and they do require fasciotomies or patients who have had uh, electrical injuries. We don't recommend you take fasciotomies, excuse me, escherotomies lightly just because somebody has a burn at circumferential and it's perhaps superficial partial thickness or the burn is soft that that person immediately get an escherotomy. Um, uh, you can watch those patients in your intensive care unit and if there's any signs of vascular compromise then proceed with the escherotomy. But leaving escherotomies uh, does complicate the uh, uh, wound closure of the patients, uh, relieves uh, some deformity there uh, and it's obvious to patients um, not only after you graft the patient but even years, years later. Um, uh, some have actually have taken uh, strips of Integra which is a dermal matrix and if uh, basically resurface the uh, uh, area of the escherotomy with the Integra prior to autografting so you don't get that contour deformity. Now when thinking about escherotomies of the uh, trunk, um, it's, um, uh, the, eschar, the uh, contracting burn eschar may not uh, result in a, um, a potentially limb-threatening injury in that case, but it could be a potentially life-threatening condition because if you have a circumferential burn around the trunk or rather significant um, uh, anterior chest wall burns, what that does is that decreases the compliance of the chest wall. It can make it very difficult to ventilate, if not impossible, to ventilate a patient. Or a patient may have elevated peak inspiratory pressures. Keep in mind that what makes up peak inspiratory pressure, or the formula for peak inspiratory pressure, is the tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and thorax plus the product of the resistance of the airway and the flow of the gas. So it, things that will decrease the compliance of your chest wall, namely having thick burn eschars, will result in a decrease in compliance and an elevation of your peak inspiratory pressure at the same tidal volume. Uh, so a patient during transport may see a rather significant, if you have somebody on a volume uh, limited mode of ventilation, say a tidal volume set at 500 or 600 throughout transport, you may see an increase in the peak inspiratory pressure. And the reason why is that eschgar is contracting the chest wall as it sets up and the patient's getting volume resuscitated. There is a decrease in their uh, thoracic compliance resulting um, uh, in that elevation of your peak inspiratory pressure. If a patient is on pressure-limited or pressure-controlled modes of ventilation, you'll see a decrease in your tidal volume based on the same physiology. The treatment there is to do an escherotomy of the chest wall. Um, I, I'm not a big uh, believer that escherotomies of the limbs need to be done in a pre-hospital or pre-burn center environment by people who have never done an escherotomy because you do have some time in that circumstance. But patients sometimes are being transported long distances and they do experience respiratory embarrassment in an aircraft. Uh, and in those circumstances, uh, the crews of the aircraft will typically contact us and, and ask for permission to proceed with an escherotomy. You should not take something like that lightly because you are doing a minor surgical procedure in an austere condition. Uh, you may actually cause bleeding, which you will have to deal with. Um, 
And in those circumstances, you typically want to make an incision in the anterior axillary line. Uh, we make a, uh, a incision also uh, down uh, the mid-sternal area and kind of a uh, subcostal incision along um, the bottom of the thorax. Uh, typically, when it comes to the superior port, uh, portion of the thorax, we actually kind of make almost like a roof-type appearance with a sternal notch and an angulating downward as we move our incision uh, medial to lateral. Uh, the idea there is we'd like to stay away from the subclavian uh, areas uh, because those areas, uh, typically if they're not burned, we don't want a wound there to complicate the placement and dressings of central venous catheters. If there are burns there, uh, we would typically uh, excise and, and graft those areas early and give us what we call lifeline portals, or we call them here, it's because those are areas of high priority to get grafted because a patient will eventually need lines. And if they're burned all over their chest, it means we're relegated to using lines in the groin, which are notoriously complicated for the development of uh, infections and, and deep venous thrombosis. You've been listening to the podcast I See Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy, um, and this has been a discussion on extremity compartment syndrome. You can um, look at our other uh, podcasts that are downloadable uh, on ICU tune, or iTunes. The uh, uh, key search there is I See Rounds, or you could visit the home website at www.icrounds.com. My name is Jeff Guy. Bye-bye.